Oh, this is lovely. This is great. I love this place. I haven't been here for ages, but it's so nice to be eating in a restaurant with some beautiful food and, and really efficient staff and everything. It's fabulous. It must take you back to your chef days. Well, it does. Not, not literally, obviously, but uh, yeah, I wasn't out the front very much, but certainly in the back kitchens, yes, certainly does. It's just nice to take time to reflect on how the podcast has been going so far, because we've been going over a month, and this is our sixth full episode. And we've been reaching around the world, haven't we? We have. It's been fantastic, the reach of this podcast. I had no idea that there were so many people in so many different places who were going to pick this up and listen to it. Oh, it's, it's just we're so overwhelmed with gratitude for all of those who've contributed, all of those who've got involved with social media. It, we're just really, really grateful. But there's one problem. We're not actually in a restaurant. We're not. It's a fantasy. It's absolutely true. We're not in a restaurant. The reason why we sort of pretended that we were is because today's episode has a kind of nice laid back feel of friends around a dinner table. So that's where we wanted to be. But Cecil is in Barcelona and Johan is in Sweden. Yes, that's true. Cecil Kaninendijk has been an urban forestry researcher, educator and advisor and a speaker for over 25 years. And he founded the Nature Based Solutions Institute together with Johan Osberg. And Johan is an associate professor at the Department of Landscape Architecture at the Swedish University in Alnarp, where he's been working since 2007. Johan is also a consultant and collaborates with other disciplines. And together with Cecil, they formed this Nature Based Solutions Institute, delivering green spaces in urban areas around the world, advising government, local government, and also on a smaller scale as well. And this is really timely because our podcast so far have talked about the greening of our cities, how that can be imbalanced to where people need the greening most, to how it affects our mental health. We've also discussed what it's like to be a developer and the consultant team and to actually build that. So this really follows on looking at how we can deliver green in our cities. So it's just time for me to get a small virtual bill. We'll head on out of this virtual restaurant and we'll see you on the other side. Hello, this is Sharon Durden-Hollenby and you're listening to Tree Lady Talks. All music and production is by Noel Durden-Hollenby and all views expressed by me or the interviewee are our own. I'm really pleased to have Cecil Kaninendijk and Johan Osberg with us today from the Nature Based Solutions Institute. So welcome to both of you. So Cecil, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure, Sharon. So I'm, I'm trained as a, as a forester um, back in the days in the Netherlands. And then I did my, my PhD in Finland, actually, on, on urban forestry. So I pretty soon went into um, this idea of having trees and, and forest in or near cities. I really thought it was fascinating because I like trees, but also like people. So it was kind of a natural fit. And from there on, I've really been working with urban forestry for, uh, for the past 25 years or so. And Johan? Yeah, so I'm what we call in Sweden a landscape engineer, which is management and construction of urban green spaces, more of the practical side of landscape architecture. Uh, and I've been always interested in green space and 
uh, everything that is sort of growing. Uh, and I wanted to have a career with something that I could sort of mix in between practical and theoretical, not being forced to be in one of the corners. Uh, so I really appreciate my line of work, being able to do consultancy, but also doing research and working with something that is so important as green spaces and trees in urban areas. And I think we all appreciate the, the theoretical and the practical doing, which makes our job so interesting. And together, you've recently formed the Nature Based Solutions Institute. Um, so people can find you on the internet. And what's the website, please? So just mbsi.eu, and then people will find it. And we're going to have a link to that on our podcast. How fast is urbanization spreading globally? And what is a picture? So urbanization is, is uh, dramatic in the world. And it's not just a lot of people moving to, uh, to cities. For example, India, they say that it will be another two or 300 million people living in cities over the next 30 years, which is amazing. But it's also, of course, conversion of non-urban land into urban. So we all want uh, spaces to live. We want our gardens. We want our uh, detached housing, etc. So that actually doesn't really help. So it's, it's a process that is very complex. But it's definitely uh, ongoing and, and we know that, I mean, already the majority of the people lives in cities and it will be 75% or so by the end of this century. And are there areas of the globe that are growing faster in terms of urbanization than others? Yeah, so I, I, I could say that probably the developing world or the global south, as we say, is actually very hard hit by urbanization. So places like Africa, Asia, China was a rural country to, until a few decades ago and is now primarily urban. So. So, and that's, that's worrying because those countries often don't have the planning system, they don't have the resources to really guide urbanization. So we see very, uh, very dramatic increases in places like Lagos, Nigeria, or in, in cities in India, et cetera, where there's really some major issues in terms of sustainability. And what about policies in those countries? Say there is a lack of policies. Is there now a movement towards a more considered and policy-based approach to greening those urban areas in the developing world? So what's happening in China? So China is an interesting case, of course, because it's a country where there's a very strong government-driven uh, approach to urban greening and, and urban development. They've had loads of issues in the past in terms of pollution, in terms of uh, rapid urbanization that was maybe not so controlled. So now they really integrate a greening approach into their urban development. Um, but one of the downsides of that is, and I'm, I'm all for greening cities, but they actually remove sometimes part of, um, of residential areas. Uh, they have people living in cities that are so-called illegals because they don't have the right documents or passports to live there. So they're seen as, as people that could be removed. So we see that housing is removed and parks are built. And of course, that raises some social issues and, and political questions as well. How can we make nature integral to the design of our cities, our existing cities? What retrofitting can we do? I think that when it comes to, because I'm, I'm more into like more westernized countries uh, and what we're doing there. And it's looking at the problems that are existing and trying to solve it uh, in a way that nature would have done. Instead of thinking about how can we construct things uh, that uh, is man-made, how can we work with nature instead of against nature? So, for example, stormwater pipes, that is something that you would never, ever see in nature, uh, but you would see more open um, say floodplains, you would see uh, creeks, you would see these types of things coming up. Uh, so um, swallows, things like that. And I think there's a kind of a paradigm shift or, or change happening 
where we actually added nature to cities afterwards. Now we're starting to see sometimes that nature is taken as a, as a, as a framework, a prerequisite. So, okay, nature first and see how that can help our city. And then we start thinking about building and constructing. And I think that's actually the way forward. Absolutely, it's a way forward because the pressures on biodiversity are really well known. But could you describe some of the harmful impacts of fast urbanization without planning and thought and, and the impacts this actually has on people's lives, let alone nature? We know, of course, that there has been dramatic impact on, on, on biodiversity. Um, I think especially in the, in, the, in the more native or local biodiversity. So we know, ironically, that sometimes cities have a very high biodiversity, but that is found in people's gardens, for example, and it's often exotic plants. Uh, parks is the same question or the same the same issue. So we lose often our local biodiversity, which is a key issue in terms of pollinators and um, also other species being dependent of each other. So it, it's a complex question once again, but we know that biodiversity has direct links to things like our health and well-being and our perception of our environment, pollinators already mentioned. So it is really worrying that we're losing biodiversity uh, in our urban areas, but just as well in our rural areas. And what about impacts on flooding as well? We're losing nature sponges. But I, I would also add, like, there are some, some studies that have been showing that you have cities where you have uh, sort of biological hotspots, uh, where you have oceans needing uh, fresh water and so on. Uh, you have mountains, you have these environmental niches. Uh, so it's even more important if you look at where you have cities to think about biodiversity in those areas. And what we can see from a Swedish perspective is that the Swedish EPA is focusing more and more on uh, urban areas than on rural. Because in rural areas, you have more like production forestry going on. You have uh, farming going on. Whereas in urban areas, you can see some remnant forest or at least old trees being preserved. Uh, so biological niches and, and uh, uh, places where you will find actually red listed species. Uh, but at the same time, we see that we're losing trees even in those areas and that people are, of course, being affected by it. You know, you're sort of losing this connection with nature. So it's very integral. It is very integral. And we heard last week in the True Lady Talks podcast on mental health and nature that there's a proven research link. And also just intuitively, I think people understand that they need the calming and cooling effects of green space in our cities. So in terms of master planning new developments, I get involved a little bit of that myself. But what trends do you see emerging and what positive ideas can you bring as an institute to people designing new places if i can if i can give some thoughts on that and i think uh, sharon you're very well qualified to to answer that question i know you work a lot with developers but that, that's i think one of the key things we should do as people working with trees in cities is we have to make sure developers come on board in a different way um, i think there are probably it's not only about legislating it's also about providing incentives and rewarding developers that actually want to work with green spaces and trees. And, and there are some good ones out there that actually are interested in it. And it's often sometimes, um, I would say, a lack of knowledge and a lack of readily available information. Uh, maybe people don't always understand the benefits of having trees on the site over the longer term. So I think it's partly, of course, we can blame the developers, but I think it's also partly uh, ourselves we can blame in some cases. Um, I'd like to say I, I agree with that and often it's a lack of imagination as well and it can also be a problem and I can only speak from the UK's perspective 
of a lack of resources within the local authorities has been a time of austerity for many, many years now, where those officers who would set strong policies or who would enforce a planning condition, they are so overstretched that, you know, there is a, there's be, can be a disconnect. There needs to be vision of strong policy from a government and then a local government perspective and then an imaginative team and rewards. And I think some of those rewards would be an award for something that's recognised um, and successful sales if they're building something. So um, we are getting there very slowly. But do you hope as the Nature Based Solutions Institute to influence government? Yeah, so so we have been working quite a bit um, before we actually started this institute with government. So I've had the pleasure to work with international organizations like uh, the European Union, but also with governments at national and local level. And there, there is actually an interest and people are more interested in developing specific policies. Uh, right now we are working on uh, with several governments actually in, in Europe on uh, on green space policies and policy development. So. So definitely an interest. And I think you, you have done quite a bit of work in, in Sweden, working with local governments, for example. So maybe you want to say a few words about that. Thank you. Yeah, I, I would just like to add as well, when it comes to this, like the whole knowledge uh, and the information that is out there, I would say that we, we've never had as much knowledge as we have right now when it comes to how to protect trees and green spaces, how to construct them, how to manage them, the value of them. Uh, but we also need to, as Cesar said, disseminate that knowledge uh, to the right people so that they are knowledgeable about, uh, about it and know how to handle it. Uh, and I think that there are also tons of different in very innovative uh, projects out there. For example, the background I have here on, on our Zoom call uh, is from the Western Harbor of the city of Malmö, where they, uh, and that was almost 20 years ago right now, uh, where they were, was working with open stormwater systems, having greenery into the city already into the development process. So there are definitely good examples out there, uh, but we need to be better at collaborating and finding those partners that we need to be able to succeed here. Yeah, that's why we really want to be a platform. So, so MBSI is, is really offering a platform for knowledge uh, knowledge producers and knowledge consumers, basically, so that we together then actually create not only um, better projects based on better information, but also questions that could be fed into back into uh, academia and research institutes. So we actually have more relevant research going on that actually feeds into practice. That's absolutely ideal because we have some fantastic research on tree planting techniques, for example. It's taking things at a micro scale now. And yet those techniques and practices often don't go through to the landscape contracting industry. So it can be really difficult to continue that chain of excellent practice all the way down. And then the aftercare as well. And also I think people themselves who live in the area need to feel actively engaged with the greening of their area or the maintenance of their particular biodiversity. And, and as an institute, what do you think about the importance of community in terms of understanding and caring for their local space? Yeah, I, I think it's extremely important to actually have that type of recognition and the buy-in uh, to care about the green spaces and understanding it. We, we've seen uh, tons of research projects talking about uh, private gardens, private trees. And I mean, it's just so much of it. It's such a big resource in a city. Uh, and it's something that most managers aren't aware of. Uh, 
Um, and I also think that we, we sort of, we talk about the disconnect, but what we can also see from, from a study done in Copenhagen, where they interviewed people living in the urban area, that they regarded the most pristine and nice environments, green spaces, was in the city, because they regarded the surrounding areas as farmland that was polluted. Uh, so they actually saw more nature in cities than outside of the city. And that is something that I don't think that we talk about and think about, like how do the residents, how do private individuals see their green spaces? Yeah, I, I would fully agree. And I think if, if somebody would ask me, if, you, if there's one word I would put uh, as, as the main priority in urban forestry, I think it's stewardship. It's, it's a word that's often overused or, or abused, et cetera, but I think it does actually signify this really important connection between people and place. And, and as you say, Sharon, the need to engage people in the local environment. And, and that, of course, requires that we understand how people interact with trees, how they perceive them differently. We have people from many different parts of the world moving to other countries, et cetera. So how do we, how do we build genuine stewardship that's not just set in a certain mindset, but is actually open to different views and different perceptions? But, but also, I would say, like, how designers, how landscapers, what, what pictures and um, visions are we sending out there? We can see a lot of new developments with hard surfaces everywhere, trees and green spaces put in small boxes. And, of course, the private individuals, the private landowners, they will be influenced of that and seeing that this is how I do, should do landscaping. I should put trees in small pots. I should have a lot of hard surfaces. So we also need to, to be a good role model uh, with our design. Yes, there's a lot of social conditioning going on. This is a normal thing. And it, it makes me despair of uh, when I see a tree planted in a raised planter, why put it in that prison and give it a short life expectancy? And trees really need that connectivity with each other and other plants and we, you know, listeners will probably be aware of that. So we really need to bust through those perceptions. And I think we all need to be very noisy about this, don't we? And, and just reach out beyond the people who are comfortable talking about this. Any ideas of how we can just like reach a wider audience and say, this really works? One important thing is bridge building and trying to find uh, sort of the, the, uh, the role models, the, the front runners. Uh, so one of the, I would say one a really, really good example of this is the structural soils that being constructed in Stockholm. Uh, and they are, I would say now almost world famous, where they're also leading in stormwater into those planting pits. But the, really the breakthrough there was Björn and Brian, the urban forester of Stockholm, talking to one road engineer, one single road engineer that could be the advocate for this and explaining it to his peers because you needed someone to understand, okay, what are you actually doing and spreading that? Because before that, they just thought that Björn and the rest of the team in Stockholm, they were crazy. Oh, you can't do this. You, you need to construct roads in a specific way. But having that other person, that, uh, that advocate from the, the sort of the other side was really the key there. Yeah, I think the, the power of good example, I think is crucial. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm, I mean, about being noisy, I think you're absolutely right, Sharon, that we need to be noisier. Uh, our profession, the green professions, we're not always the noisiest people. I think we need to be noisier. Um, and we have to be on the other end, I think, although there's often a temptation to, to pick sides and be, be very clear about the political landscape, which is not so very positive in many of our countries these days, but, but their organizations actually maneuver pretty well in that landscape. I'm thinking about American forests in the US. 
that is uh, given all the political issues they're dealing with, actually managing very well and promoting tree planting and tree care. So it, it shows, I mean, trees doesn't have to be a, a political, it is a political issue, but it doesn't have to be lead to political division, I think. Most people would agree that we need trees in our cities. So if we can work from that, I think we can bridge those political divides as well. I do hope so. Um, we, we can't afford to be quiet anymore or shy um, and just uh, keep in the forest. We've got to shout out because we're facing an absolute climate emergency. It's not something that's woolly in the future. It's happening right now. Forests are burning right now in America and in Brazil. And I heard on the news this morning that there's an area on fire the size of Scotland in Brazil with five firefighters. I can't fact check that. That's just what I've heard. And um, I, I find it really terrifying, actually. And I, I believe that what you're doing, you know, it, it's really essential to our survival. It's not no longer a nice to have. So well done for that. I find on a very micro scale, we've talked about policy, and I'd like to go back to that in detail a bit later on, but actually implementing these good ideas in a very technical way, it's all about communicating and it's all about collaborating, such as the example of Bjorn in Stockholm with his structural soils. Um, because if I can make connections with a good engineer, which I am working on a project at the moment, which um, I'm working on the change to an embankment near a large oak tree to deliver a cycleway. So it's a tiny, tiny detail, but it makes a big difference. And if we can all talk to our other peers and the community and what they want, it has to be the way forward. So I'm really glad that you're doing that. Um, do you have any other examples where you, there's been a really successful collaboration with other professions to deliver a good change? I think you're... you're last week's podcast i think on the on the mental health issue i think was a really good example i think the issue of um, of park rx i think they're called is, is really a good example of how medicine and green space can go together so prescriptions of park use uh, so i think the medical side especially with, with our current pandemic is an obvious way forward as well yes because we've got two pandemics at the moment haven't we we've got the pandemic of non-communicable diseases um, of people feeling isolated and affecting their, their physical health, like diabetes and heart disease, and also depression and anxiety. And of course, we've got the obvious one, but um, it, we're all so linked. And I think that the more that we can bring in more nature into cities, it's going to help us all. I think that so, sort of touches upon a really important thing when it comes to our profession as well, is how we frame uh, the information we have. So we need to think about how can we, in the best way possible, present the information we have. We, for example, know that trees are helping to cool cities, and that is an information that is extremely important to have when we have a severe drought or a heat stroke, something like that. Then we can bring that information up. When we talk with city planners and they bring up something about people's health, then we have all of those aspects. We also have aspects on uh, so many other things like stormwater, like air pollutions and so on. So we need to think about how do we frame our message for the specific purpose. That's so important because we have to capture the policymakers' minds as well as the general public as well and those in practice. So, um, yeah, there, there are some brilliant examples. And I think also understanding what we have already is critical when considering perhaps retrofitting or, or extending a city with, with iTree. There's a, um, we should put a link to it on our website. There's a fantastic iTree picture you must know it that shows all the benefits of urban trees and 
all the um, storage that they do and uh, the ecosystem services. Do you come across any barriers to nature-based solutions within our cities as part of your work? Yeah, so I think there are there are a lot of barriers, and I think one of the a lot of the the barrier the barriers have been discussed. I think so. It has to do with lack of knowledge, maybe not wanting to really engage with other professions. Um, I think it also has to do something with just business as usual. We we do things this way. We've always done it. So, so I think sometimes you need to to get out of that safety zone and i think uh, johan's example from stockholm is really great because it shows you that i mean they pushed and pushed and by good example they actually led the way and and became not only a swedish but an international leader so so i think this is really really important to show those good examples and promote them and i think if ever there was a time in history to break out of our entrenched way of thinking it's now because of actually we've all been forced to work differently we're not traveling. I mean, you both travel all the time, don't you, in the line of work. And so we've, I wouldn't say we have more time. It doesn't feel like that. But we have more, perhaps more time for deep reflection. So let's hope we can shape things up a bit. Do you have any radical ideas, things that are hardly done that you want to see spread? I, I think that I will actually borrow um, uh, an idea here from one of my colleagues, Thomas Randrup. Um, who has been part of a design process where it designed a whole area of the city of Copenhagen uh, according to nature-based solutions. So they, their sort of vision was how would a city look if it was designed by the principle of nature-based solutions? Well, how would nature design a city uh, with no straight streets, uh, no straight plantings, a lot of natural material, everything should be able to break down. I think, and I've seen some of the illustrations and they're just fantastic, but very provocative because they, they sort of also by those uh, illustrations raise the question, what is weed and what is something that we want to keep and what is something that just should spontaneously flower and be there. Uh, so it looks almost like a, an abandoned city, but at the same time, I think it's sort of in line with nature-based solutions. Uh, so that's a fantastic drawing. So is that, that's literally a drawing. Has any of that been built yet? No, it hasn't. It was a part of a proposal. Uh, so it was sent in in a competition. Uh, but I can send you the link to that so you can uh, show those photos because they are, they are very in informative. I think that might be the way forward, really. We've got to do things differently. What do you think, Cecil? Something that we know for a long time, and that is to reclaim public spaces in cities. And, and the main public space we have is streets. And I would say, uh, as much as possible, remove the cars and reclaim our streets by making them for soft traffic, planting trees, making pocket parks, like we've done in the pandemic. We see places like Barcelona have started closing off their streets for cars. Uh, and of course, we have to think about accessibility and making sure people can still move around. But there are ways to do it also without uh, always putting the car first. The thing that's inspired me recently is seeing the trees on buildings. I think that um, we need to have with new tower blocks, put trees on those buildings. I mean, of course, there are famous examples of those already. But um, I interviewed uh, a tree officer in Islington, John Ryan. Um, I actually do a lot of work in Islington. And he is really keen to have a policy, and that's going to come on trees on buildings. Because in our very urban cities, we've got to have these green lungs and also just to make people feel better and and to have wildlife, etc. And it's astonishing what a small change can make a massive difference. Cecil, in your role as editor of Aburra Culture and Urban Forestry, what new research is coming to light? 
So there's some really interesting research, I think, uh, happening. And one thing I really like is that people from other fields are coming into the, the urban forest, urban tree domain. So we see people from technology, from engineering, from medicine, coming in and doing research that is, is relevant. But even things like understanding, and that's one of my doctoral students at the University of British Columbia, uh, Corey Bassett, he's actually looking at how specific maintenance actions pruning, planting a tree, watering it, how they impact different ecosystem services or so different benefits of trees. Because actually we know very little about how these little interactions or the human interventions into our urban forest impact ultimately the benefits of these trees. So, so that kind of knowledge, it, sound, it seems very basic, but we know actually very little about it. So I'm really excited about those kind of studies being underway. And there's a lot of bright young people actually coming into the field and doing their graduate studies and, and early career research. So, so I'm really encouraged by that. Johan, do you have anything to add on that? Yeah, definitely. I would say what, what I think is more interested in the, is the change in mindset when it comes to arborists and also the uh, urban forestry managers. Uh, thinking much more about diversity and biodiversity that, than they ever done before. Uh, and it's interesting just seeing like the last 10 years or something where we used to take away all of the dead wood. We didn't want anything that didn't look perfect. We wanted this sort of Disney-like cities, uh, Disney World-like cities. Uh, but now we, we're accepting more and more of uh, dead wood, of high stems, of those very important biodiversity. And we, what we can see, though, is that some of the older managers is the one that don't want this because they have their professional training and their background, whereas the younger people and the citizens are actually much, much more accepting about that. Uh, so that's a trend that I am really proud of and I, I follow with great interest. I absolutely agree. And even um, in the UK, I'm a big fan of like gardening programs. And th th they're all about being a bit untidy now, not using chemicals. You know, don't do your autumn tidy up and scalp the ground. And, and we're seeing that in some of our parks. Not all of them, though. Many of them are still lollipop trees in mown grass. But... We really need that diversity in plant height and texture as well. So a bit of untidiness is good news, definitely. Cecil, tell us, what's your dream scenario? That's a big question, but I think it's actually good to, to have big scenarios and big visions. So for me, the, the dream scenario would be that every city in the world has a, a dedicated uh, green space, urban forestry person high up in the organization with a direct link to the mayor and, and the city council actually advises on and, and, and helps guide uh, a lot of the policies in the city. So nature should be integrated with policies like urban planning. It should be in, in um, city development, city economics, medical considerations, education. It should feature everywhere. And that person would be, that person with his or her staff, obviously, would be the one actually being a key person. As we had maybe 150 years ago in some cities, for example, in the UK, as we developed uh, new towns, etc. Um, so, so I think we need to go back to that. Green has to move up into the political hierarchy in our cities. Johan, what's your dream scenario? Yeah, it's, it's a very tricky question, but I would say like my dream scenario would be to question all of the old techniques, all of the old solutions and sort of reinventing them. And instead of trying to sort of beat nature and control nature, to live and build cities uh, with nature instead. I think that that is one of the biggest keys for the future. 
I think it's, it's going to become incredibly important so that we can all keep sane and healthy in our cities. So I thank you both so much. And I'm really excited about Nature Based Solutions Institute. It's going to make some meaningful changes that really affect all of our lives. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you. Well, that for me is a really great example of what's going on in the world at the moment with some disciplines coming together to really revolutionise the thinking behind how we're going to build our cities and towns. I mean, the timing is fantastic, what with climate change escalating. And we watched the BBC Extinction Programme with Sir David Attenborough last week, and that brought together so many different things. It was a real wake-up call for those who need it. I'm just really hopeful about how city design is going to progress, putting nature first. I believe we're going from the global to the microscopic almost next week. Imagine you're living inside a tree hole. Who lives there and why does it matter? We're speaking to Vicky Bengtsson from Pro Natura in Sweden, who's been bashing up trees in the interests of ecology. And we're also speaking to one of the youngest people I've seen on Country Files, certainly doing his own bit of presenting. It's fascinating. Yes, we're speaking to Ant Boy, who's going to talk to us in detail about a couple of those insects that live in woodlands. So join us next week on Tree Lady Talks. And thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.